singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you enjoy this show, you can help me make it better by writing a review on iTunes or simply by making a donation. As always, I will be the man with the questions. And today, my guest is Professor Richard Jones. Dr. Jones is Pro Vice Chancellor for Research and Innovation and Professor of Physics at the University of Sheffield. But most importantly, Richard is the author of a provocative recent book titled Against Transhumanism, The Delusion of Technological Transcendence. So, hi and uh, thanks for joining us today, Richard. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Fantastic. Excellent. So, Richard, can you perhaps uh, introduce yourself in a couple of words? Yeah, so I'm an experimental physicist uh, and uh, I, I work on macromolecules. And I became interested in the idea of nanotechnology because, I, you know, it's part of what I'm trying to do in my uh, lab work, really, is to try and uh, imitate um, some of the ways that cell biology works. So thinking about nanotechnology kind of made me confront a, the, the, the thinking about uh, the, the, the kind of nanotechnology that, that, that Drexler is associated with and really made me think a little bit about uh, the, the kinds of technical claims that underlie transhumanism. And then thinking about those technical claims, that kind of took me on to think a little bit more about the entire, uh, the, the package, if you like, including some of the perhaps non-technical penumbra. So I'm a physicist and I've kind of come to think about this, uh, this, the, the, this interesting phenomenon of transhumanism through, through thinking first about the technical issues, but then thinking about some of the broader issues too. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And which is, of course, the reason why we're talking today. Um, I have to say I enjoyed reading your book tremendously, and uh, I might go even as far as saying that I agree with 60 or 70 percent of it. Uh, so uh, let's see how, how our conversation would go today. Absolutely. So uh, first of all, let's uh, try and perhaps keep it the, at the macro level for a second here and, and about the, with the sort of the broader issues. and. And tell us, what was your motivation? What was your sort of moment or, or goal when you decided to write this book against uh, transhumanism? Because it took considerable time and effort and focus to do that, of course. Well, I mean, it's the result of quite a long time. And, it, and it, you know, in a sense, it brings together some, some writing that I've already been doing. I've been writing a blog about uh, nanotechnology and transhumanism and other issues since uh, actually 2004, I believe I started it. I, I wrote a book about uh, nanotechnology in 2004, so that, that, that's when I started thinking about it. But I think what the, the, the motivation really was thinking a lot about technology and technological innovation and technological progress. And in a sense, that's where my, you know, my day job, if you like, is to think about uh, science research, technology in a, in, in a research university. A lot of thinking about the economic situation that we're in, that the, the progress doesn't seem to be going as fast as we thought. So I, I, it's a bit of a, I came at it from thinking about this idea of progress, this idea of technological progress. And I suppose the transhumanist notion that tr technological progress is to some extent uh, you know, something, a, a force that has its own momentum and is, you know, continually accelerating. 
And I suppose the immediate, you know, our immediate economic circumstances, that's the paradox. Transhumanists talk about accelerating technological change. In terms of our economy, we're actually not seeing stuff accelerating. We've got, got this bit of a sense maybe things are stagnating a little bit. So thinking about what technology, technological progress is, what you have to do to make it progress, what it means to talk about progress, those are the issues that made me put this thing together at this point in time. So it seems your imagination or interest was captivated by the sort of the seeming paradox between the claim of accelerating change uh, and exponential growth on the one hand and the fact that we fail to observe that to translate into the economy or other major parts of our lifestyle. Is that fair to say? That's fair. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, and the sense actually, you know, there's technological progress that we'd like to see that's not happening. And you know, there are things that I wish were going faster. It's not, uh, it's not a question of just observing this. I mean, I think that there are urgent issues that we need that technological progress for. So the fact that it doesn't appear to be happening is actually a serious problem for us. Mm -hmm. Okay, I will come back to discuss that a little bit later. But to me, one of the parts that I kind of disagree with you, uh, and, and I want to touch on briefly, um, is the point of uh, technological determinism, broadly speaking, right? So, you see, uh, I, I've done about maybe 190 interviews uh, on or around the topic of the singularity uh, and transhumanism, or at least related to it, with a number of uh, your colleagues, by the way, physicists, who are, uh, I would say, overly represented uh, in the field on both sides of the conversation. And I have some funny uh, quotes for you that I bet you would enjoy tremendously later on. But one thing that I would like to say is that besides the major point that transhumanism is a very wide umbrella, and on the one hand, you can find extreme libertarians, and also you can find socialists. Uh, so we cover the whole political and social spectrum. But I would say that in my view, the sort of the technological determinism streak uh, as part of that movement is very minor in my opinion, in my experience. It's there, definitely there are some people who are exhibiting that, but I would say on the whole they were a very tiny minority in, in my experience. Um, so what, what do you want to say about that? Because I am not a, a technological determinist personally, uh, and uh, I would say most of the transhumanists uh, are not either. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair comment, and you're not the first person to say that. And, you know, over the years, I've engaged in conversations with transhumanists of various types. And, you know, I appreciate that, you know, it's a very broad church in the sense there are many different opinions. However, I guess what I'm interested in is not, you know, I'm interested in transhumanism in the sense of, you know, what, what many interesting people who subscribe to it in different ways think, but in a sense how it gets translated into wider culture and how it kind of affects our broader way of talking about technology. So in a sense, you know, maybe the problem isn't what transhumanists like you do or don't believe, it's what, what views about technology emerge into broader society as a result of transhumanist influences. And of course, that's weighted by those, um, th th those people who've got the, the, the biggest kind of media profile. So, you know, Ray Kurzweil, obviously, in terms of writing, is, uh, is 
the most um, uh, perhaps the most visible transhumanist. And so I think there are very strong uh, characteristics of technological determinism in his writing. I think in terms of the kind of political clout, it's the uh, uh, you know various um, Silicon Valley magnates, as it were, who uh, uh, I, I think do convey that. And I think, you know, underlying it all, that the, um, it's connected to people's perception of technology as it comes through, you know, in particular uh, ICT. And, of course, you can't talk about computers and ICT without talking about Moore's Law. And as soon as you say it's Moore's Law, you say it's a law, and a law is something that's deterministic. So it's uh, I kind of accept your point that within, you know, over... Uh, the, the, the many people who think about transhumanism, there are different views. But in terms of how the, 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 those beliefs feed into broader culture, I think that's a characteristic of it, which I think gets highlighted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I also kind of disagree with you, whether as to Rakers, well, who is probably, as, as, uh, as you say, the most highly profile uh, or most visible transhumanist, uh, out there in media, uh, but but I do do not think that he is a technological determinist. I had a, a number of conversations with him. Uh, he's a uh, and also he, determinism presupposes, and you actually touch a, a little bit about that in, in your book. Presupposes kind of a passivity, which is one of the reasons why you criticize it. Uh, but of course, Ray Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil is not a mere observer. He's not a passive kind of guy. He is right there. And now he may be wrong about his technological claims. He may be wrong about his vision about the future. He may be wrong about his timeline. But he's definitely not a passive observer. He's an active participant and uh, with the intention to create what he foresees in the best possible manner. So that's that's why I don't think that I, I I agree with you on the claim of technological transhumanism, especially per Ray. Okay, well, I, I mean, I think it's uh, you know I'm not I, I'm not going to argue with you about uh, uh, Kurzweil's you know um, record as a uh, as an actual practicing technologist. It's obviously you know he has many achievements to his credit, and that's. Uh, Let me give you okay then a funny a funny uh, occurrence in one of my previous interviews with one of your very notable uh, physics co uh, colleagues, where the roles were reversed. So. I told him that we have a little bit of a disagreement on the certainty and especially on the inevitability of the singularity. Yes. To which his response was, quote, well, that's because you don't understand the laws of physics and quantum mechanics, and I do. Because, again, quote, the laws of physics say that the singularity is inevitable, end of quote. And, of course, that was Professor Frank J. Tipler. Yes, well, I would uh, absolutely. I would disagree with that. I would disagree with that too. On both counts, I, I, I mean, I disagree on the, the specifics, but uh, you know, I, I find it very difficult to see how the laws of quantum mechanics can lead you to any such conclusion. Fascinating, though they are, and very puzzling. But uh, the, of all the conclusions they might lead to, I can't really quite think of that one. But but to me, it's interesting that another colleague of yours, who is a well-known mathematician and physicist. Uh, 
kind of came with such a strong claim because again i very much doubt technological determinism myself i'm absolutely not one of it and every time and as i said there is a small minority of people and frank j tipler is perhaps the best example of that who think that the singularity is inevitable and so on and i argue against them and this is the answer i get back that's because you don't get physics and they're probably right because they frank j tipler certainly knows infinitely more about quantum mechanics and physics than I do. There's something, I mean, this is probably going to take us down a tangent, but there's something very interesting about, you know, physics has a very big streak of um, Platonism in it. You know, in particular, uh, actually Christian Neoplatonism is where physics came from. And, you know, I talk about some of the strange roots of transhumanism in my in my ebook. You could talk about some of the strange roots of physics, too. And actually, you know, they're a little bit entangled as well. So that kind of sense of uh, the, 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 some of those kind of, kind of things that are less empirical than, uh, the, 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 than the kind of physics that perhaps the, the physics tradition I was brought up in, are, uh, you know, they appear amongst some physicist colleagues. So there seem to be some interesting similarities between transhumanism and physics then. No, absolutely. Yeah, well, as, as I say, it's uh, that when you delve into intellectual history, you go to some strange places. Absolutely. It's very fascinating. And I really appreciate uh, your kind of uh, time and effort to go through intellectual history, which I think is very re revealing and very relevant. And we're going to talk ab about it uh, uh, in a second. But let's take your argument step by step as kind of it unfolds into your book so first of all um let's start with uh page six perhaps where you say it's worth making the obvious point that an exponential function doesn't have a singularity yeah i think it's worth touching on that can you please elaborate well uh, it's uh, i suppose again m maybe this is uh, pointing towards um, uh, you know much of the stuff that kurzweil writes uh, you know the nature of exponential growth it's interesting but uh, um, an exponential mathematically doesn't have a singularity an exponential represents a constant rate of fractional growth and actually it's quite a it, I know people say, oh, we're, we're used to a world of linear, the things growing linearly and exponential growth is very foreign to us. Actually, I don't think that's true. Exponential growth is very natural to us because exponential growth comes from saying every year I'm going to do 10% better than I did last year. I think so, so. And, you know, it just keeps on growing. But the idea is we don't get the cumulative effect of that. So, for example, the best example of that may be perhaps the compound interest, right? People don't quite get the power, supposedly, of compound interest. No, that, that's fair enough. And, but, but, but it's not, but then, then they, they perhaps don't get the power of compound interest. And this is, you know, an important factor for why people don't make enough provision for their, uh, their retirement. But, you know, compound interest is not a fundamentally foreign, co uh, for, foreign idea, is it? The point is, you know, you compound interest builds your money up but your your money never explodes it never goes to infinity it gets very big you know we're richer now than we were in 1500 you know on, on the basis of uh, five centuries of compound interest and you know so that means we're very much richer than we were in 1500 but you know 
we still haven't got to a singularity. Our, our lives are very different in some ways, but in some ways they're still recognisably human. So uh, exponential growth is an interesting thing, I mean, but it's not. it doesn't lead to a singularity. What does lead to a singularity is having exponential growth where the rate or you know, growth where the growth rate is itself accelerating. And that, you know, that I do, you know, just for mathematical terms, that's how you get a function that explodes that goes to infinity. You have, um, you know, e to the minus uh, uh, t over t north or something where you've got um, uh, something that's making the, great, the, the fractional rate increase with time. You know, and there are systems that you see that in physics. There are systems that do have singularities. That that's an essential singularity in, in, in mathematical terms, but we don't really see the evidence that that's happening in, in in technological growth or indeed in economic growth. And actually, in economic growth, it's definitely not happening because if anything's happening, the rate is slowing down, not speeding up. So. Uh I, I have to say I kind of agree with you largely on that, but if I were to play Ray Kurzweil here, the, the two usual replies to, to your argument that he would give here in this context would be the fact that exponential growth is deceptive in the beginning. Uh, so because we're talking of the doubling of very small quantities, so it's kind of deceptively small and invisible for a very long, long time. And perhaps he would say right now we are in that part of the curve. Uh, and secondly... Uh, as per whether it's accelerating, some people would argue, I don't know if Ray would still do that, but some would argue that it is, or at least for some time it was. So, for example, Moore's law uh, used to take 24 to 36 months, then it supposedly at some point dropped down to about 13 or 14 months at the peak of sort of our capacity to double the number of transistors per thousand dollars of computation. And now, supposedly, once we're reaching against the level of sort of uh, five nanometers we have, or seven to five nanometers, we're slowing down again tremendously. And even Intel had to uh, uh, change its uh, its projected timeline for the next generation of Intel transistors. So I, I agree with you, but but maybe there was some part of Moore's law where it was indeed kind of a more of an exponential accelerating exponential where the time was shrinking for a period of several decades between uh, the doubling of that transistor capacity per thousand dollars. Yeah, of course. But, you know, and Moore's law is, of course, just one bit of technology. And there are many other areas of technology that, 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 that don't go so quickly. Absolutely. Uh, the, the ones that Ray Kurzweil usually gives as an example are the hard drive capacity, which seems to be accelerating and or memory uh ram memory and things like that well yeah i mean ram memory I, I mean now that that's going to be subject to the same physical limits as cpus given we've all now got flash memory we've thrown away our hard drives but um and i could allow me to argue against myself actually <laughs> <laughs> sure of course thank you too I mean, the argument, the, the really strong argument for this is that, you know, technology allow, should allow you to make technology go faster. And so, you know, look, I'm 55. I did, I started my PhD in 1983 or 1984, you know, and at the time, I, I, I mean, you're, you know, the first, actually the first computer I used in my research, I had to, you know, you had to program by flicking the switches on the front panel. You know, then I remember the great excitement to get in the first PC clones, and then the nightmare of trying to work out how we, you know, to do our data analysis in you know 640k of memory. 
So, you know, I've seen, now I see my students uh, doing their research with, you know, computing power that's just fantastically much more powerful than anything I had. So, uh, you know, you could you could say, well, why isn't science going faster? Likewise, you know, I, I, I remember if I was trying to read the literature, I'd have to go down to the scientific periodicals library and I'd be up on a ladder pulling journals off and looking through indices. Now I can sit here, everything's on the web, I can use Google Scholar or Web of Science and I can pull down papers from, you know, all over the place. So it is a puzzle. Productivity, somehow you might have thought that the productivity of science has uh, has um, got faster. But on the other hand, the other side of the coin is, of course, we did the easy stuff already. And so science gets harder because we're trying to solve harder problems and we have better tools. And it does seem to be a bit of a race in which it's not obvious to me that the you know the technology is kind of allowing us to keep up with the difficulty of the you know the difficulty of the problems that we have to solve so you know it it wasn't a dumb thing to to say that technology should accelerate the growth yeah. of further technology and maybe you know it's a reading of the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution that to some extent that happened at that time when you know the combination of you know, printing and journals being circulated and new technology for experiments. But it just doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, another good sort of argument that I have encountered so far for that is uh, was given to me by Carl Schroeder, who is a, a very uh, good uh, futurist and science fiction writer. And he said, uh, basically, if you have a, a very complicated system and one or two or even three elements of it uh, exhibit exponential growth uh, trends that does not necessarily translates to the system as a whole right because there are other parts of the system where sort of the pipeline is much more narrow and it doesn't move along exponential or accelerating uh, trends and therefore the system as a whole and even if particular elements of it may be moving uh, at an accelerating pace in exponential growth that doesn't necessarily translate to the whole of the system. I think that's absolutely true. And you know, if I go on to what the uh, you know what's the blockage, you know, what's the rate limiting uh, step in science? I actually think it's you know it's human creativity, human smarts. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that, that that's still the case. We are the weaker link in the in the system. We are. We are indeed. Even though we have improved somewhat marginally, and that brings me to another point that Ramez Naam, who was working on the big Bing search engine for some time on Microsoft, uh, uh, on its quote, quote, artificial intelligence, and he told me, you know, Bing's AI is amazing, but it's nothing like human AI, first of all. And second of all, he said, I wrote four or five books, and let me tell you, it doesn't get any easier for the last five or 10 years Every time I write the book, it takes pretty much the same time and the same effort. Maybe a tiny little marginally easier because I don't have, as you say, to go down in the basement and look at everything like with a flashlight or something. And I can find it on my desktop. But still, the effort of the writing is the same. Indeed. Yeah. And the effort of thinking of something truly original, that gets more difficult. Absolutely. That's the real, the real tough part. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Now, let me touch on another kind of marginal uh, point that I want to make uh, about, about your book, and that's the, the, the fact that it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're kind of using the terms transhumanists and singularitarians almost as synonyms. Yes, I, I, I think I, I'm, well, yes, I, I'm, I, I think that I, I'm aware that you could draw a distinction, but in this case, yes, I mean, I think you know, in a sense, there's a different emphasis, isn't there? The singularity as being this technological event horizon on the one hand, transhumanism as being about this sense of transcending the limits of human nature on the other. You know, yes, they're, 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 those are different things, but they often come very closely coupled, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap, but I, I would also say there's a lot of, uh, there's considerable amount of differences. And uh, it's not necessarily the case that all singularitarians are transhumanists or that all, sing all transhumanists are singularitarians. So I just, it's a minor point. Um, okay, so now let's jump in sort of the meat of the matter here with your, the core of your argument. So you divide your argument against transhumanism into two main parts. The, the first part is the sort of cultural historical argument. And the second part is the technical argument. So can you please walk us through uh, sort of that, that, those arguments one by one? So let's start with the sort of what you call the strange ideological roots of transhumanism. Yeah. So I, I guess, you know, the argument of this really, I, I mean, you know, the, the, the uh, it's, uh, you know, if, you, if we look back at where transhumanism came from, transhumanism, you know, it's not, in some sense, a, a very modern. Um, uh, it's not. It's not a, a very modern phenomenon, and I think I try to situate it in a very long tradition in Western religious thought of uh, you know the apocalypse of uh, the, the time at which there's a great revealing, a time at which there's a, that there's a transcendence, and this is you know it's familiar in various. Uh, Western religious traditions, both uh, um, uh, both Christian and, uh, and and Jewish, and I suspect also Islamic too, but I don't know that that, that, that tradition very well. And uh, you know, it's been a mainstream. It's been actually, it's not quite mainstream. It's been a, a, a slight minority sense of uh, that, that those religious traditions for at least a millennium. You know, the idea that we're coming up to some great apocalypse where everything will be different. And the key point being that that apocalypse is something that happens in historical time and in historical space. And in our lifetimes. And in our lifetimes. I think, as I say, I don't think it's quite orthodoxy in the sense that, uh, you know, um, you know, for example, in, in Orthodox Catholic tradition, I believe, and again, you know, I'm not a theologian, but my understanding of that is, you know, in the works of St. Augustine, you know, we think of the great revelatory books of the Bible, like, you know, Daniel and the, the, the Revelation as being, you know, essentially um, metaphorical, that they're essentially allegorical, and they talk about, you know, people's own internal spiritual journeys. But, you know, going back, you know, some of the figures I mentioned, Joachim in the 13th century, you know, there's been this tradition of interpreting the revelation of Daniel and those those books as being you know predictions of what's going to happen 
in the future, there's going to be this great revealing. Everything will be different. Uh, you know, we'll have you know ages of the saints, pe pe people living in this transfigured, new, transformed, new, uh, new world uh, on Earth. And it's not, you know, this is not an original argument to me at all. Uh, that, that, that there's a very strong argument, for example, that Marxism represents, if you like, a kind of secularization of that religious myth that, uh, that, that, that uh, uh, you know, when the state has withered away, we'll, we'll be in this kind of transcendent paradise. So it's kind of interesting that if you now to connect it to things that transhumanists would recognize uh, as being, you know, recognizably transhumanist in their character, or indeed singularitarians would recognize as uh, recognizably a singularity, the point where they meet is in that fantastic book by Bernal, the, the, the word, the flesh and the devil. Uh, uh, sorry, now I've forgotten what it's called. The world, the flesh and the devil. The world, the, the, world, the flesh and the devil. It's not the word, the flesh and the devil. It's the world, the flesh and the devil. Which is a fantastic essay. I don't know if you've read it. It's it's really worth looking up. No, but I'm going to. And you know, Bernal. I think Bernal was a great scientist, and he, you know, and he was a very interesting man. He was a thorough Marxist, and I think this came this this came from this kind of combination of three things: that sense of strong scientific progress that he had, you know, that that he had as a scientist in the twenties and thirties. Bernal, his area, he was an X-ray, uh, he, he did X-ray diffraction. He was one of the first people to start to do X-ray diffraction on biological macromolecules. So you, you, know, you had the sense these are the first people getting in to understand the secrets of biological systems, the secrets of life. So they had that kind of tremendous sense of scientific progress. He had that sense of Marxist progress, because he was a Marxist, and, uh, uh, you know, living in those you know in that slightly cocooned environment the, the and most typically he had the marxist idea of inevitability of historical inevitability precisely precisely and just to 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 give a little more specificity of, of what you're talking about let me quote from page 10 where you say uh uh, and that's a quote from bernal who says quote men will not be content to manufacture life they will want to improve on it end of quote Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I quote also as that quote from Trotsky, which is, uh, which echoes that entirely. So, yeah, so you see, so, you know, the, the sense of inevitability came from Marx. It ended up mixed up with science. It had that, you know, Marx got it from Hegel. Hegel got it from uh, who knows where, going back to Jürgen. So that was, that, that, that was one strand. And it's, it, it, it's fascinating. And then, you know, we, we have this even odder strand, if you like, that comes through the cosmists and through Fyodorov and going to Tsiolovsky. And that, of course, interestingly, you know, if we, we look where uh, Drexler came from, Drexler came out of that movement of thinking about space colonies, thinking about, you know, going into outer space that came from, you know, all the enthusiasm about space travel that was happening in the, well, you know, from the 40s through to the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And of course, at that time, you know, who couldn't have lived through the, 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 the 60s and seen those dreams of space travel come true? I mean, as I say, it's, you know, I'm 55, one of my, you know, 
I got woken up in the middle of the night to go and see Neil Armstrong land on the moon. So, you know, in a sense, that sense of progress, inevitable progress, and that sense of man's destiny in the stars, all that sort of thing, that, that, that was very powerful, uh, a very powerful set of ideas that were feeding into this. Yeah, I agree entirely with, with those, uh, I have to say. And it's hard, perhaps even impossible, to argue against the influence of uh, sort of uh, teleology in general, but in particular uh, Russian cosmism and, and sort of uh, Marxist, East, Ma Marxist sort of scientism uh, on sort of the ideas that later on had major influence on transhumanism. So, so uh, I agree. I agree with you very much on that. But why do you think that's important to understand? I think because I think it's important to understand that your ideas don't come from nowhere, and that they have a long history, and you need to think about them critically. And so, you know, I was having a conversation a few, few weeks ago with another interviewer who was, you know, and he, he, he was making this point. He was saying, you know, just because some idea comes from, from a religious background, you know, it doesn't make it wrong. You know, that, as I say, I kind of enjoy the irony because I've, I, I've engaged with some transhumanists who are very aggressively atheist, very aggressively secular and, uh, you know, it's a reliable way of winding them up, if you like, to kind of point this out. But, you know, it's a fair point. And as I say, you know, I, I think, you know, far from not everything that Marx wrote was wrong either. But you need to understand where these ideas come from. You need to understand why people have been so keen to believe them. And you need to just poke yourself and ask yourself, you know, am I being critical enough about what I'm thinking or am I just slipping into a pattern of thought that I've inherited from people in centuries past that mm -hmm. is motivated by other things apart from, you know, honest analysis? Yeah, I agree with that very much, actually. And and let me just say here, you finished that chapter on page 12 by saying that the idea that history is destiny has proved to be an extremely bad one. And I don't think the idea that technology is destiny will necessarily work out that well either. Yep. Of course, I totally agree with and embrace that, and which is why my blog is not about technology, but it's about ethics. Indeed. It's a choice, right? It's, it's what we choose to do that ends up making the difference. There's no teleological destiny that we are unfolding towards uh, blindly or or unwillingly, if you will. But it's basically the future is created in the moment of, of decision, in, in the moment that we make our choices. And that's why I believe ethics is so vitally important, because this is how we forge the future. Indeed. This is why I also think, tend to agree with you more that uh, and tends to disagree with Ray about the predictability necessarily, especially in the longer term of, let's say, 15, 20 or 30 years. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's move now uh, a little bit more into sort of the depth of the technical details of, of the technical argument that you have against uh, transhumanism. And that's like where your area of expertise lies perhaps most deeply and profoundly. And that's... Um, Divide it into three parts. So the first part is perhaps uh, sort of the importance and relevance of nanotechnology as epitomized by the work of uh, Eric Drexler. Yeah. 
the second one is sort of the idea of uh, indefinite life extension or immortality as epitomized by the work of uh, Aubrey de Grey. Uh, and lastly, perhaps uh, the idea of uh, the ideas of artificial intelligence and perhaps uh, one of the ways of accomplishing that uh, would be potentially mind uploading and so on. Absolutely, yeah. Let's take those uh, one by one here. Let's start with nanotechnology. What's kind of the vision uh, of, of nanotechnology that fits within transhumanism and why is it technologically flawed or implausible or inaccurate? Well, this is, yeah, this, this really is where I started in this business. And, you know, I, I, I should say I started, I, I read the, the works of Eric Drexler. I thought, well, this is all, you know, really exciting and actually had some resonance with what I was uh, trying to do in my own, you know, in a very small way, perhaps in my, in my own laboratory. And I suppose the, uh, the, the way I would characterize the argument that Drexler made, and I think Drexler was more original sometimes than even he gives himself credit for, because I think he, it, it, Drexler spent a lot of time, I mean, people, for example, talk about Feynman as the, uh, the, the, the founder of nanotechnology. Actually, Drexler made a very original contribution to it, which was to point out this analogy with biology and to point out, you know, if we're talking about making little machines that operate on the nanoscale, that can convert energy and that can, can build things with atomic precision, Biology offers that existence proof. So, uh, the, the, so if we look at a, a cell biology, you look at things like ribosomes. They're fantastic machines that work with great accuracy and can do marvelous things. And you know, we see, you know, we have to occasionally, you know, things are very familiar to us, and we have to pinch ourselves to remind us how incredible they are. But you know, the idea that. You know, uh, the, the, an animal goes around munching the grass or whatever and converting the grass into this very complicated structure that is, is, is that animal. That's a, an incredible transformation. And it happens through these nanoscale machines that biology has. So, so far, so good then. So what's the, what's the problem? What's the issue with Drexler vision then? So here's the issue. So Drexler, so, so Drexler pointed that out and that was a really important insight. What he then did and what, uh, you know, people, where people have run with the idea has been to say, well, if biology does it, biology does it in ways that seem a bit difficult for us to understand. Biology uses soft, floppy materials. It uses you know, these random design processes, it all looks a bit kind of haphazard and not very well engineered. So surely if we were to rethink it, sit down, re-engineer uh, uh, nanotechnology, re-engineer biology, we'd make something better. And so uh, Drexler's book, Nanosystems, is, if you like, a systematic attempt to reimagine what a nanotechnology would look like. To propose a way to accomplish that vision. Absolutely. If you if you were to use um, you know the principles of mechanical engineering, as he said, you know he says nanosystems. It is it's the principles of mechanical engineering applied to chemistry. Now, my argument is that this misses this misses a point. This is a really important point, and that's that the principles of mechanical engineering work well in our everyday macroscale world because 
the kind of physics that we encounter is the right physics, if you like, for mechanical engineering to solve the problems of that physics. The physics that you encounter in the nanoscale world looks very different. It looks, uh, and you know, I'm specifically talking about the physics that biology works in. It's wet, it's warm, you've got Brownian motion, you've got the constant jiggling around. It's a very different set of problems that cell biology has to solve. And actually, the methods that cell biology uses to solve that, or they look, although they look slightly weird to us, are actually pretty much optimized for that world. So the argument that biology shows that you can do it, but we could do it much better by re-engineering it according to engineering principles, I think falls because it doesn't recognize the way that the physics looks different at the nanoscale and that biology actually is uses operating principles that are pretty well optimized for, for, for those conditions. So, so, Richard, I'm not a nanotechnology expert myself, of course, as you know. I'm more of a sort of a simple philosopher guy, if you will. Let's accept that what you say about Eric Drexler argument uh, and its technical feasibility is 100% accurate, right? So Eric Drexler's uh, proposed way through mechanical engineering of accomplishing that vision is not going to work. Does that make it, though, in principle, implausible that there may be an alternative route or alternative routes to get there? Is that absolutely impossible or is it just one way that's a bad way? Well, it depends where there is. Um, I think, you know... Well, there, as you put it, uh, and, and I think that maybe that was a quote from Drexler, there is the moment where the material world becomes software. Exactly. That's a very compelling vision. I don't think we can get there in any universal way that in the way that, that Drexler imagines and is kind of you know talked about in in, in the uh, in various uh, science fiction books so i accept that drexler's way as i said may be faulty but does that make it absolutely infeasible in any other alternative way well I, as i say i think the grand universal vision of completely reducing the material to well to software i cannot see how you can do it does that mean that they're not interesting things to do by trying to 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 to, to see what biology does and trying tr trying to use those principles making nanoscale machines and devices absolutely i think that's a fascinating project and uh, you know in my own lab we've been trying to do it in our own kind of rather crude way and incidentally you know if you uh, you know i just a year or two ago i last had a conversation with eric and you know in terms of what we would say you know what the research priorities are for right you know right now actually we'd probably be pretty close in agreement you know we look at dna nanotechnology the kind of stuff that ned seaman uh, pioneered where you can make fantastic nanoscale structures by self-assembly i think it's Beautiful, beautiful science, absolutely the, 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 the right thing to do. It's just where we disagree, I think, is where it'll lead. And I suppose I'm just much more sceptical that it will lead to the grand universalizing vision of all matter being software. I think it will lead to interesting, useful technologies that we ought to develop that will be, you know, that will... Uh, be, be you know could have big applications in medicine and such like not very quickly i might say but you know the the, the universalizing vision i can't see how it's going to happen mm -hmm. you know let me uh 
tell you how this sounds to me like to, to the lay person like me who is kind of interested and engaged in this matter. So I'm willing to buy your argument that perhaps Eric uh, Drexler's pathway is flawed. I fail, though, to accept the possibility that it's the vision is an impossibility quite yet. So and sort of like it reminds me your argument on the sort of the grander scheme reminds me a little bit to something which Peter Diamandis something sometimes says, which is an expert is someone who can tell you uh, something that you cannot do or what's impossible to do. And it reminds me to Lord Kelvin, who, by the way, was also a physicist and, and a mathematician. Uh, in, in the late uh, 1890s, I think, he wrote a book on, on why heavier-than-air aircraft is impossible to design or construct or engineer. And, of course, then we had two bicycle makers uh, who, or, uh, who never read his book, who kind of proved him wrong. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it's very easy to find uh, experts who've made mistakes, and that's why I spend quite a lot of time desperately trying not to be uh, um, definitive about what I say and say, you know, I, I can't see how to do it. And, you know, I'm kind of maybe, you know, uh, maybe my uh, British empirical upbringing makes me resistant to grand visions and, uh, uh, and you know, so I think about what's going to happen in the next 50 or 100 years and maybe I reserve judgment of what's going to happen after then but uh, I you know I say it like I say it I think you know sure and you may be correct absolutely actually I'm just saying that I'm not convinced that it's impossible yeah impossible is a very difficult word okay so let's move on to to uh, the next part of the argument then um, I'm kind of thinking here if I should actually take an interesting sideline because I've already mentioned two physicists and I want to mention a bunch of others and see if we can have a laugh about that. But, you know, my previous interview uh, last week was with another physicist uh, whose name was Jan Tallinn, who is the founder of Skype. And he said he's part of the group of physicists who want to save the world. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, a very notable few names among those are Max Tegmark, yeah. Nick Bostrom, of course, who is also a transhumanist. Well, he's a philosopher, I think, isn't he, rather than a physicist? Well, by education, he's a physicist. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. His education is in physics, actually. And, of course, Martin Rees, uh, who is actually a colleague there of yours in Cambridge. Uh, yes, I've met him a few times, indeed. <laughs> right. So what, like... I don't know. It's it's an interesting kind of observation, as I said in the beginning. How many physicists there are, both on both sides of the transhumanist argument, and 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 what do you want to say about that? Because I think they are overrepresented as opposed to other scientists. Is that not funny and interesting? Well, it is interesting. You know, you know physicists. You know, we we have slight imperial tendencies, as you know. So um, we do tend to think that uh, you know there's no part of. Uh, uh, human knowledge that we shouldn't have a view on so uh i, I think that that you know that that i think there's a very good tradition in, in in physics of not feeling too restricted to one's field and try trying to think more broadly and you know i i did my training in the cavendish laboratory which kind of prides itself on having revolutionized biology by you know, discovering the structure of DNA. So, 
uh, I think, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting sideline. Physicists are, um, uh, uh, do have a tradition of thinking broadly. I think, uh, you know, the, the, the notion that one wants to save the world is an important one too. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I'd love to save the world too. I'm not sure I quite know how to do it, but, you know, I'm passionately keen to understand, uh, you know, to, to think about um you know what we do about things like sustainable energy low carbon energy you know in terms of uh, the uh, other things i try and do that's that, that's uh, something that i care very deeply about i agree entirely with you on sustainable energy and i hope that people like you could create sort of the nanotechnology sort of improvements for the tools like uh, photovoltaic solar batteries or anything else that can be used to take us into that epoch no, absolutely, and that's you know again in my day job. That's uh, you know one of the areas that I've been doing doing a fair amount of work on is understanding the nanoscale structure of these new organic photovoltaics, which hopefully are cheaper and can be produced in much bigger quantities. So yeah, you know I I, I think those are areas that uh, absolutely we need to promote more research, more development. You know, getting things out at scale in big quantities. But it's funny observation to me as a layperson as to how like some transhumanists like you are uh, or some physicists like you are anti-transhumanists and others are transhumanists. Yeah, well, all human life is there, isn't it? And, and, but they're very visible. And, and, and also, let me use that as a segue to get back on topic here and, and address the, uh, the third uh, part of your technical argument, which pertains to artificial intelligence. Uh, and two other very well-known, straightforward physicists, Max Tegmark, and uh, of course we should not forget to mention Dr. Stephen Hawking, have brought a lot of public attention and media attention lately on the issues related to artificial intelligence and the potential dangers posed by it. Yeah, yeah. First of all, what do you want to say about that at the general level? And then I would let you have time to go deeper at, at the technical level and how it pertains to our argument today. Right. Well, I'd want to distinguish between, you know, artificial intelligence in the general sense and, um, you know, people, uh, names coming in and out of fashion, don't they? People, you know, there's a lot of talk now about machine learning. And I think maybe that's a, a better term to have. It's clear the combination of big databases, smart programming, lots of processing power is allowing us to create artificial systems that can systematically uh, sift through huge quantities of data, extract patterns, use those uh, use that those patterns to kind of influence um, you know action. So you know, self driving cars is a, 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 a good example. So you know, those are technological changes that are important and powerful and can have both positive and negative effects and you know to the extent that I you know um, you know one only has to look at uh, you know I think robotics is a subject that's in a absolutely fascinating phase at the moment and in some sense quite a quite a frightening one and so you know we're already seeing drones being used in uh, in, in combat uh, with you know the technical possibilities for increased or, or autonomous action of those drones, you know this is not a remote possibility. This is pretty much happening now. So 
you know, in that sense, machine learning, robotics, artificial intelligence in that sense is, a, you know, it's a clear and present danger. However, I don't think that's at all the same as the question of creating human or human-like intelligences on uh, on synthetic substrates, which I think is the subject of uh, of the, the my chapter on brain uploading. So that's a very you know what I've got there is a very specific question, which is can you emulate a human intelligence? human consciousness, if you like, you know, if we make the, the, the assumption that if you reproduced, um, the, if you introduced the, 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 the computing power of a brain, the consciousness would magically emerge. Actually, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of neutral on that. I think it might well do. Uh, but, uh, you know, that technical question. And again, I suppose, you, you know, you'll be, you could legitimately say, or you're never saying it, well, I, I have a very tentative argument about why that might be impossible, but you know, the, the, the thrust of my argument is, you know, it's really difficult. It's just much, much more difficult than people think, and it's not going to happen anytime soon. And that's really based on thinking a little bit about the nature of information processing in biological systems. And I think the point, you know, if I was going to summarize that point briefly, it is that people underestimate how much information processing there is in biological systems. And in particular, the one thing that they do is they make a wrong mapping, if you like, from the biological to the computer, you know, the mapping at the level of the neuron, you know, the neuron or possibly the synapse to the transistor. It's the wrong mapping. The unit of biological computing is the molecule. And, you know, if there's one slogan, I would say that would be it. And when you realize that, then suddenly you realize, gosh, this problem is just much, much more difficult than anyone, uh, you know, than, than, than people currently think. You know, if I'm to nail the thing that I most enjoy, and to me personally was the most enlightening in your whole book, is exactly this one sentence that you just said, that molecules are the most fundamental unit of biological information processing and it's not the neurons right for me that's the thing that i'll take and carry with me the most from your book and and that's kind of the most kind of illuminating and enlightening part of it if you will personally so tell us a bit more about that well and then i should say you know it's not an original observation by me i mean the the, the person whose observation that is is, is dennis bray who's a, a cambridge scientist he wrote a really good book called wetware which i really strongly uh, uh, uh which i strongly recommend and i mean perhaps the way to think about this is to think yourself into the think yourself into the mind of a bacteria you know we think of bacteria as being the simplest Thing, the simplest uh, organism there is, but a bacteria is already doing huge amounts of information processing, and the way it's doing that is through, you know, chemical stimuli. The, cl you know, the, the classic thing that people uh, uh, have studied and do understand in detail is how does a bacteria know to swim to food towards food? Well, it's a sensor. It's a, uh, it's a molecule that combines chemical inputs and produces a chemical input output, and that chemical output itself is a signal that tells the bacteria to change the, the, the mode of its swimming. So even at these simple 
crudest of organisms, they're already doing purposeful behavior, if you like. Now, when we build ourselves up, to, now build up to the kind of information processing that we're doing in the brain, each one of our cells is doing all that all the time. Then our nerve cells are doing that kind of chemical processing. And in addition, they've got this trick with uh, electrical potentials, which, by the way, also fundamentally depends on macromolecular shape change. It depends on molecules changing shape in response to, to signals coming in. That's the way that, that biological information processing works. So, uh, you know, when you do a, a classic uh, experiment on a nerve cell, you see an electrical pulse go down it. That itself is already a collective phenomenon that results from lots and lots of individual molecular actions. So, um, you know, you're integrating up all the time molecules processing information, creating signals, creating larger scale phenomena like the action potential, like releasing molecules across synapses. And it's all, it's all building up to something much more complex. And it makes it, you know, we didn't design it. The other thing is we didn't design it. It all emerged from this amazing process of evolution. So, you know, the, the, the principles that we imagine, that the principles that we rely on, if you think about how to understand a, 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 central, a, a CPU, those principles we can't rely on. The distinction between hardware and software, the idea that we've got you know, a, a, a discrete layer in which you can think about logic and you don't have to worry about what's going on in smaller details. All those kind of separation of length scales, the separation of processes, it's not there. It's just a ghastly, hideous mixture that's enormously complex. And that's why, you know, that's why it's so rich. But it's also why it's going to be such a difficult thing to, to, to simulate. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little more about sort of the random quantum effects and uh, sort of uh, technological determinism. Well, yeah, no. This this is now getting uh, this is now getting to where I'm starting to speculate. The one thing I'd say is, you know, thinking about how you do a simulation. If you look at a, a biological macromolecule, you know, we can do many experiments on biological mac macromolecules. They're always moving. They're moving randomly. They're flux. They're flexing. They're moving around, and that random motion. That's what their their, their operation depends on. Okay, so when I say random, what do I mean by random? Well, if I'm doing a simulation, I would be putting in randomness through using, you know, calls to a pseudo-random num number generator. And it's a very interesting thing when we talk about randomness, isn't it? What do we mean by something being random? Is it truly random in that there's no way of predicting what could happen next? Or does it just seem random because we're not able to follow all the little details that are going on? And this gets, you know, this is a very fundamental issue in, in statistical mechanics. And, you know, there are actually different opinions. Now, my view about it is that the randomness is genuine randomness because it comes from quantum mechanics. Now, at this point, I know, you know, there's a, a, an interesting discussion about, you know, does quantum, is quantum mechanics important in biology? Is it important in computer, in, in, in the brain operation? And what people usually mean by that is, you know, are the coherent, the mysterious coherent effects of quantum mechanics important? And my answer to that is probably not, because the, 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 the nature of the environment, the coherence length is very short. But there's a phenomenon in biology, or a phenomenon in nanoscale uh, uh, 
um, physics that's very important. And it's a phenomenon called van der Waals forces. It's actually very familiar. You learn about it at high school or certainly in university. And uh, it's what makes biological macromolecules stick together. It's, you know, it's one of the fundamental forces that, that's always operating. Now, when you scratch the surface of this and ask, where does the van der Waals force come from? The, the best way of thinking about it is that it comes from actually the, the vacuum fluctuations, the, the, the fluctuations that take place in a vacuum in quantum mechanics, the idea that photons and antiphotons are constantly popping out and going back in again. So it's, um, you know, to, to, to be technical about it, the force arises because two solid bodies change the nature of the electric field between them and they change the spectrum of random fluctuations and that leads to a force. It's a force that arises because of randomness, because of quantum mechanical randomness, and because of that, the force itself is random. So, uh, if, 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 um, you know, a van der Waals force is attractive, but if you imagine that the attraction will be modulated by little jiggles that come from that quantum mechanical randomness. So I think fundamentally, uh, the physics that makes your brain works has got randomness baked into it at a very deep level from quantum mechanics. And so from that point of view, you know, it's not deterministic. The information processing that goes on in our brains and our bodies is not deterministic at a really fundamental and deep level. Mm -hmm. And just to highlight what you just say with two quotes from your book, on page 35 you say, the molecular basis of biological computation means that it isn't deterministic, it's stochastic, it's random. The randomness isn't an accident, accidental add-on, it's intrinsic to the way molecular formulation processing works. And a little further on you say, it seems to me that all the agonizing about whether the idea of free will is compatible with a brain that operates through deterministic physics is completely misplaced because the brain just doesn't operate through deterministic physics. Yeah, we can just stop worrying about it. Absolutely. Okay, so, uh, well, absolutely. <laughs> we, we have about uh, 15 minutes, so I think uh, we just have to move on through your argument as, as we go to, to be able to finish on time. So uh, the, the last little bit here is about sort of the, the pursuit of sort of indefinite life extension. Um, and... Uh, I think that's kind of the most obviously proto-religious uh, kind of part of, of the field, which is the hardest to debate against, uh, in my view anyway. Uh, so tell me a little bit about that. Well, again, you know, and here I am. I'm being, uh, I'm trying not to say impossible. I'm, uh, I'm, but I guess what I'm saying here is I think there are some problems in human medicine which currently are very hard and um, I think there's a view around and I guess you know Aubrey de Grey is the one who's most associated with with it is that you know the reason you know the reason that we haven't solved the problem you know the diseases of aging is simply because we haven't tried hard enough or we haven't you know used a hard-nosed engineering approach enough and I just think that this is uh, you know, this is just not realistic. Um, I think, you know, there are some enormously serious diseases of aging. 
and, and you know the the various dimensions are the ones that really leap to mind. You know, I'm, you know, we're making lots of progress at uh, with cancer, but you know, cancer still still uh, fairly intractable. Uh, we have lots of lifestyle-related diseases, of course, which uh, you know tells us that we should worry as much about social, you know, society and politics as uh, as medicine, because plenty of people die completely unnecessarily due to just, just the social conditions. So you know that it, it's it's it perhaps speaks to something about wrong priorities that we don't address that first. But then, you know, we're left with these really intractable sets of conditions around dementia, Alzheimer's in particular, Parkinson's disease, which are really hard diseases to understand. Well, they're hard diseases to cure because we don't actually understand where they come from. And, uh, you know, again, you, you could say to me, am I saying that you know, in 50 years or 100 years we won't have a cure for Alzheimer's? My answer is, you know, I absolutely hope we do. We ought to be spending more effort trying to work out how we do that. But I think, but I think at this moment in time to say that, you know, we're on the verge of, uh, of infinite life extension is it's, it's 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 unrealistic and you know somehow slightly delusional and I, I think it kind of takes away from the seriousness of the challenges that we face and I say seriousness is both social and uh, and biomedical. So don't you think that, for example, uh, some recent uh, breakthroughs in telomere lengthening techniques and their impact, for example, on, on mice or lab mice, where we've been able to increase life expectancy uh, in old mice, mice, mind you, by something like 230% and even restore uh, uh, vigor and uh, brain size and, and uh, performance in mice. And that was maybe three or four years ago now. Uh, don't you think those sound or look like sort of precursors that we are getting closer? Well, no, progress is always welcome, isn't it? But it's as we were saying before, when you were talking about, you know, exponential technologies, you know, there's a weakest link somewhere. You know, if you, if you fix one disease, then you die of another. At the moment, you know, I think the weakest link are the dementias. And, you know, we're really not finding it very easy to get much of a handle on them. So, you know, the, the, the telomere story is an interesting one that, that, you know, there are other things that we're doing with, uh, um, you know, in, in other areas. I, mean, I, was, I was at a technical conference earlier this week and talking about uh, regenerative medicine and, you know, the kind of technical advances that we're able to do. You know, with scaffolds, persuading, persuading stem cells to differentiate in the right way. You know, what would we need to do to be able to regenerate da damaged heart tissues? You know, all along this one, you know, I don't want you ever to think that either I'm against technological progress or even think it's not happening. I do. I just think that we need to be very realistic about the scale of the challenges and the fact that, you know, particularly, you know, the aging one is a particularly difficult one because there's all... You, know, you you get into old age and pretty much everything fails. That's the problem. It's not just you, you can't just fix up one system. You've got to fix up all of them. Yeah, but the idea here is that if we prevent the aging process itself, then you would kind of resolve more, if not all, but many of those uh, issues and, and illnesses related or associated with old age. 
Well, no, but there, you know, you're already begging a question to say there is an aging process. I don't think there is an aging process. I think there's quite a lot of aging processes. You know, the process that leads to the kind of, you know, protein misfolding, the kind of, uh, you know, protein aggregation that we believe is underneath some of the the the, the, the uh, dementias. You know, that's a completely different process to the 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 the, 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 the removing of the capacity for cells to repair themselves that you know underlies the telomere story so you know there are lots of different stories lots of different aging processes and you know you have to get all of them right you know as, as i say don't get me wrong i absolutely think that we ought to be spending a lot of time trying to work out how to solve all these problems i just think it's delusional to think it's going to happen any anytime soon and you know again going back to progress and Moore's law and things, you know, we have to face the fact that actually, you know, in some areas of biomedical science, progress is slowing down. That, you know, the, the money it's now taking to bring a drug to market, that's gone through, well, it's gone through a few decades where it's costing us exponential more money and resource to get a working treatment into, into the body. So it's... Uh, you know, we we need to kind of walk a, a, a middle line here. You know, I, I don't want to say, you know, we're all doomed and there's no point trying. But on the other hand, I suppose, you know, why I think the technological determinism argument, you know, if there is a sense that technological determinism is seeping out into the public, people think, oh, technology is accelerating, it's all going to be fine, everything's marvellous. You know, this stuff doesn't happen unless we put serious effort and resources into it and i suppose that's what we need to do yeah and i agree with that that we require focused effort and resources and that's why i I, th I thought in the beginning was so important for me to sort of distinguish and differentiate that in my view most transhumanists do not uh, find themselves on the side of determinism and on the side of passivity but rather uh, uh, call for more focused effort and and resources and stuff like that but uh, richard time is advancing here so uh, let me let me just say perhaps that if you're curious that perhaps I agree with you on the sort of mind uploading uh, stream of your argument, part of your argument, and, and I agree. Even though I've interviewed people like Professor Randall Koenig, who said mind uploading is no longer science fiction in his view, but I've interviewed many other people too, and, and in my uh, opinion, we're very, very, very far away from it. And and you make to me the strongest argument there on that realm. Um, uh, on the life extension part, I, I think we've made more, a lot more progress, and I think it's possible to see better results much further ahead. Maybe not in the next 10 or 20 years, but maybe in the next 30 years or 40 years. Uh, so I'm, I'm personally a lot more optimistic there, though I can't say or guarantee or promise any of that will happen indeed. Because again, I'm not a determinist and I'm not a believer that it's inevitable in any way, shape or form. But let's presume that everything that you've said in your book is 100% correct for the sake of the argument. So uh, the cultural sort of historical reasons and connections to uh, religions, um, the sort of the technical reasons, be it from life extension, be it from nanotechnology, be it from mind uploading slash artificial intelligence are all correct. Why should we care then about transhumanism if it's totally wrong and flawed? 
Well, I think that, that this, you know, I think you, uh, uh, earlier in the interview, you said something that I agreed with, which I, I, I think is at the heart of it, which is that, you know, this is all about the choices that we make. I think that I think the most important point I would want to get across is that progress isn't guaranteed. Uh, we we need to ask ourselves what we mean by progress too. We need to, you know that 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 term itself contains lots of freight in terms of you know okay progress for who who benefits who doesn't benefit. So you know we need you know as a society we have to make those choices about you know what's the progress that we want and what's the progress that we don't want. We have to work out you know what's doable we have to be a bit hard-nosed about what the you know what the the scale of the challenges that we face are so i, I think you know maybe you think i'm being unfair but my charge is that transhumanism as it's perceived in the popular world i think is damaging to the way that we talk about technology it's damaging to the way that we think about technology and i think we could have a much more open discussion about technology if we are able to leave some of those ideas behind and, uh, as I say, think about the future in a more open way. Think about it not as something that we're heading towards that's going to arrive in 2042, but something that, you know, we don't know what the future is going to be. Uh, the future could be very much worse than we like, than, than we'd like. We hope the future will be much better. You know, I've got children. I want them to grow up into a world that's better than the one that I grew up in. I don't think that's guaranteed. So I think we need a very, uh, a much more considered discussion about what's the, you know, what kind of progress do we want, what sort of technology do we want, what do we need to get to get that technology. Because again, to bring it back to you know the the economic argument of right now, the economic argument of right now is that our economy our economies aren't growing. The, you know we've had a long period. Well, you know we've had a period since the four, since nineteen forty five, nineteen fifty, depending on where you are, of very fast growth driven by technological change. That seems to be sputtering, and you know actually in the here and now, the politics of that are are starting to get a bit ugly as I think we see in many countries in the developed world so uh, it's about how we think about technology what the most productive way of, of thinking about technology is how we make the right choices in, in, in the progress that we want in the technologies that we want to develop Richard, uh, and that's kind of the whole purpose of my existence and my work for the last five or six years, because I'm trying to sort of create the context where we have exactly, precisely that kind of discourse that you're talking about and ask exactly those questions, because I believe that those will be ethical choices that we make and, and politics will play. I'm, I mean, I'm a reforming political scientist, so, uh, and ethics is at least in theory, the best place where you should apply, or I mean, politics is at least in theory where you should apply ethics the most, uh, at, at best. So I agree entirely with you on that sense. Uh, I, I think we can agree to disagree on the fact as to whether transhumanism actually supports that goal or, or damages it. And, and I'm more on the side that I think transhumanism promotes uh, that kind of discourse and that kind of uh, goal and the pursuit of that through scientific means. Uh, despite its many flaws and, and idiosyncrasies and people uh, and, and even religious connotations, if you will. Uh, 
but let me ask you uh, here, what's the best place for uh, any one of my audience to kind of follow your work and find more about what you do? So I, I have a blog of my own. It's uh, called Soft Machines. It's uh, after my uh, my, um, my 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 book. So if you look on my my blog, so that's uh, www.softmachines.org, uh, I, you find a lot of writing there. Some of it's getting quite uh, it varies between being science and economics. And there's, there's some stuff that's maybe of less interest because it's quite hardcore science policy. But that's a, you know, pretty much everything I've written is linked to from that blog. So that's the, 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 the one-stop uh, shop for stuff that I've written and thought about over the years. Mm -hmm. Richard, you already preempted my classic uh, last question, which is the most important uh, thing that our audience should take away from this conversation with you. But I'd like to give you again the last word, as I always do, uh, maybe to add or elaborate on that. How do we close our conversation? What do you want to say as our last word? Well, I'd, I'd like to agree with you about the, you know, the importance of ethics, the importance of politics. I think talking about technology is really important. I think, you know, we've had a great discussion about technology now. Uh, th thanks so much for the opportunity to do that. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 